You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment, and I can tell you that you'll want to listen on to find out what he has to say about the real impact removing negative gearing will have on the property market. Well, the number crunches have done, you know, whether it's politically palatable, and it's a winner. It's a vote winner. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp, and we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, Everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this episode, we pick the brains of Ben Kingsley, who may well be best known for co-hosting the Property Couch podcast with my old small screen co-host, Bryce Holdaway. (laughs) Ben's a pretty busy bloke. He is the founder of advisory business Empower Wealth, which made the 2016 and 17 BRW Fast 100 companies list. Well done. Mm -hmm. And the chair of the recently established Property Investors Council of Australia, PICA, which is for investors, not for industry people, and we'll we'll discuss that in a moment. Uh, He's also the co-founder of Location Score, co-host of The Property Couch, as I just mentioned, and best-selling author of The Armchair Guide to Property Investing, which I have read, and soon to be released to make money simple again, which I haven't read. Nobody's read it. No. (laughs) Except your editor. A few. Yeah. Uh, He was awarded the 2014 and 15 Property Investment Advisor of the Year, as well as winning the 2018 Property Advisory Firm of the Year. And he also holds a real estate agency license, Diploma of Finance and Mortgage Broking Management, one diploma, (laughs) and he's a qualified property investment advisor. Phew. Thanks for joining us, Ben. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Really appreciate <laughs> no it. No worries, Chris. And we're in a bit of a podcast royalty here. Ooh. So, uh, you know, we appreciate you uh, taking some time. Oh, nothing um, special about me. Yeah, I mean, property investment, you know, we're all going to love it. We all love talking about it. But, I mean, what are the big things that you see that property investors should know that they don't? Uh, um, <laughs> starts with the numbers. So it starts and ends with the numbers, right? So from our point of view, um, money management and being able to retain and hold on to debt longer term because property is a long-term investment. Most people get that. Um, you would probably think in the last few years and since probably 2011 that, that everyone thinks that property prices should be going up 10 or 20% every year. Um, so we have short-term memories in that respect. Uh, but if we, if we get it right and we hold on to those assets for you know, a good period of time, um, if they're good quality assets, then you should do well. Um, there's still some debate around whether, you know, you should find the market to sell. Um, research might determine that. Like, I mean, we're getting better and better access to data. Mm. So that could see us making decisions around, you know, selling some properties when, when the cycle might hit the top of the cycle. But fundamentally from our point of view is if we're chasing uh, strong capital growth properties, we normally like to hold them for the long term. What else should people understand? Well, you know, it's, it's a game of two parts. The one is the, the actual, you know, modelling around the personal the mindset, the individual, um, how they manage their money and so forth. And then the other side of it is the science around the property selection. Mm. Um, and that is, uh, you know, much debated much depending debated. on depending <laughs> on what you, uh, what you want to try and achieve. But if you're chasing growth, it's usually a supply and demand story. 
Um, so, you know, we focus in on those variables. Yeah, you mentioned there around there's two strategies, which is true, right? Like you can get something if you buy really well, in 10 years' time it's going to be better because, you know, it's got shortage of supply, it's scarce, and then as long as there's population and income growth, then it's going to become more desirable and you never really want to sell it, right? It's a really good asset. In 2030, it'll be better, 2040, et cetera. So that's kind of one buy hold. Yep. You mentioned there, but potentially though, you can kind of time the market a little bit and buy assets and sell them and and you know, the numbers can kind of make that work. I well, mean, tell me a bit more about that. So first of all, you know, the big caveat to that is property is a high entry, high exit cost you know, opportunity. And that's why we don't trade property like we do other things. So in a way, that sort of underpins the the low volatility when we talk about property. Uh, but when we are sort of focusing in on what are the drivers around, you know, property, you've definitely got to say that obviously the land's in short supply and and the fact that the reason why I like property so much over any other form of investment, because the reality is you can, if you pick the right business, you will make more money picking that business as a stock, yeah. right, than what you will out of picking a property. Yeah. Um, you know, if we had to bought Amazon 10 years ago, You've got a 10-bagger like, the, you know, in CSL, those types of things, you, you know, that that's the difference. When it comes to property, because we're putting gearing and leverage against that, our cash-on-cash cash return is superior compared to maybe picking the, you know, ASX top 200. Yep. So that that's the X factor when it comes to that. So when I circle back to stories around uh, demographics and human interest, human behaviour and, and income, I'm on the fence in terms of I don't see strong income growth in Australia or globally or probably the next 20 or 30 years, right? So I take a view now that the lower the interest rates that we got, which meant we got higher borrowing power, lifted all ships, right? So the rising tide lifted all ships, and that's why we saw property prices in the outer suburbs and so forth do as well as they did. But what we're seeing now through technology, innovation, robotics, those types of things, big data, machine learning, AI, all that stuff that's coming through, and we're starting to see... All of the uh, economists and, and also the academics really struggling to see where that next phase of, of income growth is going to come from. That's broadly speaking. So that's a broad-reaching income growth, right? So we've got historically low interest rates. We've got basically nil inflation, and that could also be sustained through technology, innovation, and efficiencies and productivity and all, all the things. I mean, yep. we just have to look when we go into Kmart or Big W or whatever. You can buy a singlet for $2. You can buy a whole outfit for 5 bucks. Mm. So that type of stuff was $20, 30 $40 mm. 20, 30 years ago. You know, fridges are coming down. Electronics are coming down. Uh, the big one at the moment is still our energy costs. But the reality is, is we're getting more and more efficient with time, yeah, yeah, with yeah. you know our our solar uh, tectonic plates or tectonic plates, our solar plates <laughs> and those types of things are getting more efficient. You know, we get around twenty five percent. They think they can get that up to thirty thirty five percent over the course of the next ten years. All of those things are going to also put pressure in terms of bringing the value of a cost of electricity and all those things yep. down. So, so, so the wages don't is, go up. Yeah. Cost of living is going down. So, in terms of the real value of money, it is going up. Well, true, true, but as long as I mean, we've still got some inflation. We, you know, what we can't have is stagnation or deflation. Mm. That's that's chronic, right? That's that's a real problem. But the one two percent wage growth that we are seeing that's broad there. I mean, we we're used to three to four percent, mm. right? And we're used to three percent long term inflation. So the challenge with that is, is that if if that is the case, then all property prices can't keep going higher, right? Mm. Um, but that's why I like the flight to quality, right? That's mm. where I Correct. think that there is going to be parcels of the marketplace yep. where there will be people who are bucking the trend. There will be people yep. who are getting 10% pay rises, 20% pay rises, mm. who who accelerate their growth of income 
um, and then they are going to put pressure on the existing stock in the better locations. And that's why, you know, if I'm a long-term investor, I always, you know, have that flight back to quality. Yeah, I think you're right 100%. I think inequality is is a huge problem around the world and it's only getting worse, right? And as tech companies kind of become bigger platforms and start killing more and more small business, and I agree that wage growth across the board, it does look unlikely. And but what you will see, though, some incomes will go to the skilled and, you know, the higher portion incomes will probably still grow pretty good. And where they're going to want to live is where the jobs are and where the jobs are are kind of in the city. They're not going to be out in farms. So, you know, you're going to see this. <laughs> you are going to see this flight to safety and you are going to see where people are going to compete for property in the inner rings. But outer suburbs aren't going to have the income growth to keep pushing prices up. Well, it's yeah. all that reverse ripple effect that I've always been talking about and, and that whole idea that people only go further out because they can't afford where they really want to be and the minute they feel like they can afford where they really want to be, they go back. Which mm. gives you more comfort in the mm. in those marketplaces yeah. in terms of they're less volatile. Yes. That said, I mean, our extreme ends, you know, our really top, you know, 25% quartile where we're talking, you know, uh, upwards of twelve yeah. million, right down to probably two and a yeah. half million. That that has some volatility. In of course, it, right? it does. Because but this is a small market, isn't yeah. it? So of course, you know, you're much more reliant on individuals and, and what they can and can't do. And a lot of that's driven by status and ego and business confidence, right? So if you're going to go pay eight million dollars for a house, you're only going to do that if you think your business is going to, you know, keep on making the money, or I'm going to keep earning two million dollars a year. And so how the world's going, that really affects their confidence level. Oh, well, yeah, you know, the, the big guys getting their bonuses and all of those mm. things and the market's doing well, those property prices, the premium end goes well, right? When that turns around, it, mm. it gets a bit lumpy. But the reality is even over the longer term, they still do damn well. Yeah. You know, those properties, yeah. They're still, we're still sort of 8 9 10% compounding returns for 40-plus years. I mean, it's pretty crazy. And, and tax-free, right? Yeah, uh, if it's owner-occupier, yeah. Yeah, 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 that's right. And so when you look at the wealth of Australia – um, you look at where a lot of the wealthy have made their money. It's in property. A lot of it's been on their home uh, and they've kept upgrading their home and a lot of that they haven't paid tax on, you know. Um, We've also got to remember that people lose money in property. Yeah, a lot of people forget that, don't they? They do Monica, forget that. They? Well, you love the paid and gain report. You know, yeah, I talk about it every time. Yeah. In fact, Chris put a post on LinkedIn this week and I was like, oh, fine, I've got a convert, someone else getting the pain and gain report. Yeah, it's a good report Well, it's a good logic. reminder. And, you know, interestingly enough, you know, High markets and low markets, that figure roughly it's 10, 10 plus or minus percent, you know, close to 10%. It's pretty standard. doesn't matter what the, the whole market is doing. And that circles back to the big data story around are we going to get better at timing where we buy? And the answer for me on that one is I think we will. Mm. Like I think through machine learning and and gathering, you know, we're not talking hundreds of thousands of data points, but we are literally talking hundreds of millions of data points mm. and getting, you know, the cognitive mm. brain of the computer, which can outthink and outsmart any of us in this room, that that's not going to be able to have some predictive understanding of where the next areas are going to be. And so that is of interest to me, um, you know, and it's of interest to our research in terms of how we look at that. And, and then you can, you know, mm. potentially get into some of those markets. Because the other thing is, People who might be listening to saying, well, that's all well and good, but I can't afford the million-dollar property as an investment, mm. so what do I do? So, well, the ripple effect is you probably look for the next suburb out or you look for the townhouse or you look for the unit depending on where you're located. But the reality is is that you can still make some good money and, and if we're going to see lending tightening up, yield is going to play a little bit of a higher yep. 
proportion mm. of where we're going to be able to buy. So, so I think there is still an argument for people who, um, you know, because every every strategy for any property investor should be tailored. Um, yes. If you can't do that, then the reality is we might be buying more balanced assets, mm. and we might even be buying some yield assets for some clients um, over the journey. You know, the whole idea about investors wanting to actually have financial freedom, which is fundamentally why we do it. Yes. And if it isn't, then there's a bit of a worry. Um, <laughs> you know, like, i.e., I. if I'm buying an investment property because my mates bought one. So the financial freedom point of view, there, there are a lot of aspects to that. And, um, and I think also that what people do have to understand is when they buy into one market, they're committed to that market because the cost of getting in and then getting out if it's a stuff up um, and also opportunity costs, and we talk about all these things all the time. But, I mean, so it's got to be very, very carefully calibrated yeah. in many ways, well, in every way, really, when it comes to property. But I want to sort of just take the conversation in a different direction for a minute. Sure, because sure. until, what, a year ago or two years ago, you were actually the chair of PIPA, yes. which is a Property Investment <laughs> Professionals Association of Australia. Yes. Still on the board. You're still on the board, mm -hmm. and you, which you didn't include in the bio. Doesn't but, matter. Uh, you got doesn't too matter. much. Yes, There's so much else in there. But PICA, so P-I-C-A, yes. which is the Property Investors Council of Australia, yep. you have just recently been very instrumental in setting that up. Yep. Um, I'd really love to talk more about that because the reality so is, I. good, excellent, you want to talk about it, we'll just <laughs> let you go. I won't even ask a question. Well, I guess I will. I'll start. Why did you set it up? So the backstory is that, yes, as the chairman of PIPA, um, we've been advocating for regulation in the property investment space. Um but we only represent, you know, a small portion of the overall people who operate in the market. And there's lots of spruikers and lots of commentators and lots of mortgage brokers moonlighting and accountants moonlighting and financial planners moonlighting as property experts. So um, that association um, has a very clear code of conduct and the people who are part of PIPA, the professionals who are part of PIPA, it's all about advocating um, and trying to educate them to do the best work that they can do and stay within the boundaries of what we think is non-conflict and working in the client's best interests. But we haven't been able to get to a critical influential mass. Um, so that was always playing on my mind as chair. I mean, we've got some great members, you know, we've got CoreLogic, we've got the REA group, um, we've got lots of, you know, mid-cap businesses and so forth. So we're probably representing 10,000 plus employed people in the mm. industry, but you know, there's probably 150,000 that would be out there that yeah. we could potentially collectively look after. So I approached the board of PIPA and I said, we need to do more because there's no one who is actually protecting the interests of the property investor. Mm. And I did see some headwinds coming in terms of housing affordability and what was going on. I was doing some conferences and so forth and speaking on behalf of PIPA. And, and you could just see that the attitude towards the property investor and the way and the politicians mm. were saying those greedy property investors and, and all of that type of stuff was playing out. So if we didn't come together in a united way where we could advocate and also educate those property investors as well, because we're also seeing people like, you know, I was panicking back when 55% of all new lending in New South Wales was to investors. I'm thinking, oh, my God, mm -hmm. this doesn't end well, right? Mm. And we're starting to see that play out now takes a little bit of time with property. And just to step in there, I yep. think what you're saying there really is about the fact is that if investors are dominating the market, then that is what's fueling a boom. Well, in some cases it can, right? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But ultimately the prices will eventually end up where owner-occupiers are willing to pay. Exactly. Right? So yeah. as an investor, you should always be a price taker, not a price maker. Yeah. So 70% of the market's controlled by owner-occupiers. So ultimately <laughs> that's where you want to potentially end up. Yeah. So- mm -hmm. So coming back to that story, yeah, mm. there was too many people, you know, everyone was becoming a property investor mm. or speculating in property and we're starting to see, you know, what's going to happen with that. So 
Um, that said, we needed to obviously set up an association run by property investors for property investors. Yeah. So stepping away from the professional side, because the reality is that you kn- you know what the politician's position were going to be. Look at those greedy, you know, yep. self-interest business owners. They care about, you know, real estate agents. All they do is care about their own mm. backyard. But we're now starting to see. I mean, look, you know, the, the changes, surprise changes, depreciation, travel costs, we didn't see that coming. Mm-hmm. Um, we've now seen the Victorian uh, government, the, the Andrews government introduce what are some pretty interesting and very aggressive tenancy mm. reforms, mm-hmm. um, 130 of them, um, some wow. of them quite incredible. Mm. So um, so we're now starting to see exactly why there's a purpose mm-hmm. for picker in the marketplace. Mm. And, you know, membership's $5, right? So we haven't made it difficult for people to join um, and we're going to, you know, two fundamental principles. We want advocacy where we can get a seat at the table if we get a critical mass of of members, and we're talking, you know, around twenty five thousand. All of a sudden, yeah. you know, and there's two point, maybe two and a quarter million of us property investors out there. Yeah. Once people start taking money away vote. from us, and we vote, <laughs> yes. then there's going to be a really interesting, um, you know, sort of juxtaposition that's going to play out there. And so we're sort of saying to government and and regulators, we we definitely believe same with the Tenancy Act. There was need for change. It mm. hadn't been changed for a while. Yeah. But did we strike the right balance or has the balance now gone in favour of the tenants where they can have pets in the property unrestricted? Mm. Um, they can like, Basically, you can barely remove them from the property uh, even if they're poor tenants. Right. So it's, it's a really difficult thing. So we wanted to get the balance right. And there hasn't been that strong enough consultation. So there's been strong consultation on the tenancy union side. Mm. And fair enough, in some cases, you know, they were they were definitely being, um, you know, sort of bullies, not the right word, but in some cases taken advantage of. But we want to try and get that balance right. Yeah. But it's gone the extreme other way. And the only reason why it's gone that way is because no some of the, well, misses. yeah, and there's some political seats, right? that are mm. Green versus Labor. Mm. So this is the Labor's play to try and get the Green vote. Because the market's unregulated, right? And it's unregulated for a reason, you know, because a lot of the stuff that gets sold to investors, the government doesn't really want to put their nose in because they just want the transaction to happen, you know, because it's it you saying, a- Are you saying that maybe some of these political donations that come from developers might influence the decisions of the I? Chris, that's a big call. I um, can't <laughs> believe that you might suggest uh, and, that. You know, and you've got the state <laughs> revenue office gets paid on stamp duty. You've got land tax on investment properties. Mm. You've got the banks on the banking systems yeah. all supported International by it. investors now getting slugged an additional tax. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. so end of the day, the, the government doesn't really want to regulate the property industry because it just wants to keep pumping up the price because um, <laughs> there's so many people that make money on it. So I guess what sort of regulation, when you say- uh, regu- bring regulation to the property industry, what sort of regulation changes would you like to see? Well, so what we would like to see is we don't want anyone who can put on a suit or a nice, you know, power dress or something like that to go and basically convince someone to buy a house and land package and earn $25,000 commission. Oh, so I'd like to see that too. So if we were to regulate it, effectively it would become what we call a licensed investment product. It would be under the Corporations mm. Act, okay, and there would be a special class residential or what they w- we would call direct property, anyone who's a professional taking a fee, whether directly or indirectly, yeah. would have to be qualified to give that advice. Still wouldn't stop mum and dads from going and doing it themselves. Good luck with that. Um, <laughs> but if they were to get some professional advice, these people are qualified and trained and, and continued professional development to be able to deliver that advice. So yeah. someone working for like, say, a big 
wouldn't say a name of a company, but you know, a big home builder and they've got a display home in a new land release yep. and mum and dad or mum and dad and dad and mum and mum walk in there <laughs> yes. um, and they want to buy a house and land package, yep. um, that person selling them to and you want them to be regulated. No. No, that's a real estate agent's job, right? Or okay. in, in, if they're working on behalf of the builder, if they're buying it for owner-occupied purposes, it's completely irrelevant. If that ha- that couple walked into that particular office and said, is this going to make for a great investment? Okay. Yep. That's when it should be like, pause. It's a bit like when someone comes and asks me, should I do this for tax reasons? Pause. I'm not a tax advisor. Yep. I'm not a licensed tax agent. You know, so. <laughs> Such a good point. You know, I was actually at an REI New South Wales uh, panel. I was yep. on a panel actually last week and we're talking about there's a pathway to professionalism and, and I absolutely 100% all for it. Real estate agents, you know, becoming professionals, i.e. like a lawyer is a professional, a, you know, an accountant is yeah. a professional and additional qualifications, et cetera. And one of the things I was talking about, which is really mostly of salespeople, was that you guys should not be giving investment advice. No, they shouldn't. And yet they all do. You see it. You see it written in their in their, yep. their blurbs. You see it. You hear it when you go to, a, you know, open houses. This is a really good investment. They don't even know that they don't know. They what, absolutely don't know. They need to They need to do exactly what the legislation says if it is a licensed investment product and talk about statements of fact. Mm. So, you, so I can still talk about statements of fact to say that superannuation is a taxation structure. Yes. Okay. So I, <clears throat> but I'm not giving any advice around that. I'm just making a. So if they put into their commentary, uh, this property is estimated to have a rental yield of X, that's fine. And, you know, yep. this property has grown by Y over the course of X years. That's all pre statements of fact, of fact mm. in terms yep. of the estimates that they're making. So they're qualified to do that. The question that the problem that we have, and, and this is what happens even in, in some cases with some buyer's agents, is mm. that the buyer's agent's interested in doing the purchase of the property, but they may not necessarily know the personal circumstances. So it's about acting in the best interests. Chris, Mm. you would know that's a financial planner, you know. Mm. You've got to act in the best interests of the client. Well, you know, know the the information about the client. Are you having kids in three or four years' time? Is that going to affect your ability to hold this asset? So it it is, for me, it's about bringing those two disciplines together and also bringing the discipline of the tax agent in there and and also the the conveyancer or the or the or the uh, lawyer to basically bring that team of experts. Yeah, and that's the way we would like to see it. An ideal world would love to see that, I guess, with the you know. But a lot of these new developments, you know, the reason they're sold and the reason they can be sold is because it is unregulated. Mm. You know, because um, <laughs> as soon as you bring in regulation, you bring in trust and honesty and best interest duty and doing the right thing. Um, and you know, the figures and, and, you know, I've been at, you know, I know you guys have been there, the property buyer kind of expos, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want to entertain yourself, go around <laughs> uh, property buyer expo mm. and listen to what you, how you get sold to and listen to the facts. Now they can say absolutely anything. They could say that there's a new shopping center built, getting built. There's a new train line coming. If there was no train line or there was no shopping center coming, you couldn't go back to them and say, you lied to me. There's zero regulation, isn't there? Correct. Um, and I guess so. You, it's- can, you still you can still get prosecuted under the under the um, Consumer Laws Act yes. of two thousand and eleven, but it's a very difficult. I mean, you know, if you're proving t- someone yeah, said it, deceptive and misleading mm-hmm. conduct is still a very very big thing as part of that. But the challenge that we have seen, and when we do get you know complaints through PIPA, um, the first thing we do is say, have you got anything in writing, mm-hmm. anything that they've claimed or said? Now, if they've used an example of one buy that they got lucky. Four years ago, and they've you know sold 
a thousand others, but one property that they bought went really well. Mm. What do you think they're going to focus in on? That one property. Yeah. And the story that they might tell around that property might be a good one, mm. but the other thousand victims um, all sit there going, I've got no growth in the, in, a, in the development that they've put me in and where's my recourse? And the reality is, is unfortunately, unless you can prove that it's been deceptive or misleading. And if they, you know, if they are stating that, you know, there is a train line coming there and they're referencing, you know, future, you know, town planning 20 years from now that there's a dotted line going through there that says train, yep. you know, then unfortunately that's not going to be prosecuted. We, what we really hate is the, the hyperburb that goes around in terms of I made, you know, 80% gain in 14 seconds and all of that type of stuff. That mm. highly annoys me and, and people, you know, fall victim to that. Are you going to try to look at uh, commissions that are paid to other professional services like, you know, you know, the ticket. You know, it's very common and, in, in, yeah, the, soft dollar referral in the mortgage broking industry. It it's very common in financial advice, very common in accountancy. Um, you know, you get a phone call from a developer or off the plan salesperson and <laughs> next you know they're in your office um, and they want to offer you six, seven, eight percent commission. Oh. Um, and, uh, you know, at the moment you can you can pretty much get it if you want. If you set up a system and process and, um, and sometimes people don't even need to disclose it. Uh, is, is that something that Picker is kind of looking at? Oh, well, that's part of the regulation. That would stop overnight. Mm. But we're also seeing some very, very large developers, you know, some of the biggest in the country. I've heard rumours that they're offering anyone a $10,000 spotter's fee. Yeah. $10,000 spotter's fee. You don't even have to be any. You could be someone at the gym who knows yeah. someone else at the gym who's looking to buy a property. And if you can get them into a particular, you know, mass-developed Property, you can you can earn a ten thousand dollar referral fee. Well, one of the big four got done in the Royal Commission for exactly that, right? Yeah. So yeah. they are in the mortgage broking space. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a hairdresser. I'm cutting hair. I'm talking to people all day. Yeah. Oh, you know, do you have a home? Yes. Okay. Well, there's a lead to a big four, um, and they would get paid a huge commission on it. So and there's no that's worrying. to disclose. Because, like, you know, in, in New South Wales, for instance, as a sales agent or as a buyer's agent, you've got a section forty seven. Yep. Decla- you know, yeah, you got uh, disclaimer. Disclose. Yep. And if you are not a licensed real estate agent, you don't have to disclaim anything. That's right. And if you're not earning a fee for giving the advice to buy that property, because yeah, if you're if you are earning a fee, you need to be a licensed real estate agent. Yeah. So it, it, look, it, and that's the challenge we've got yeah. right, in terms of trying to regulate the market. But I, I think it's really clear. We just need a, a pathway to change three or four years. Yep. Get the qualifications in play and the education courses in play. I would love to see more financial planners being able to offer property, direct property, mm. real property, as we call it, um, real uh, residential property, as part of their suite of offering. Because mm. that's the other frustrations we sometimes have when mm. when people are thinking about property and that conversation gets shut down by a financial planner. Because it's they, not a financial as well, it doesn't sit under their PI cover for mm. number one, and you know, and then maybe their dealer group doesn't offer it, and so all of a sudden it's like, no, no, you've got enough exposure in your family home, yeah, so yeah. you so don't invest in. So in, in your travels, because you've, you know, with Pippa and et cetera, how, have you seen many financial advisors who have really kind of grasped property, I guess? There's a, there's a few. There's not a lot of them, and usually they have their own licence, but even then under their own licence, the, the PI cover, so the professional indemnity insurance that they're trying to get, is very difficult for them. And so there needs to be, because no one wants to underwrite it, because they've seen what happened with Storm Financial and with all of these other sort of shocking groups that really didn't have an idea about property, thought that you know, all properties go up all the time and, you know, everyone got sucked into that And it, is, that it is a huge frustration for me, right? So I see, you know, 
25,000 advisors, but very few financial advisors will even talk about property. No, um, they won't. And they haven't ever, financial advisors have never really been trained in property, right? It's why would you train a, an advisor on how to you know, sell or advise on property? Because generally speaking, if, if they've got a little bit of money and they put it into a property, then they've got no assets left, right? Nothing and they have to invest in managed correct. portfolio. Yeah. 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 And that's one of the reasons. That's, so that's the first thing. So a lot of it, you know, advisors wouldn't recommend buy a property because if they recommend that, then they're going to have no money left over and then they can't charge a fee to manage it. Yep. There's a, you know, my utopian society looks mm. like that you would be able to have a network of professionals who can care for a yep. individual or care for a couple or even, you know, where we're going to go into the future is to these family offices, right? Mm. So we'll see more and more mum and dads and, and their children team up and become a, a wealth centre. And, and I, you know, the Europeans have been doing it for years yeah, where yeah. the oldest person gets the house paid off first and the second, you know, that is sensible money management. Like yeah. don't worry about segregating your money and separating your money out. You want to have it all in an offset account. If the kids are working as well, set up a spreadsheet. Track their money separately, mm. but put all your money into that to power down your cost. Of, I mean, that's just money working harder for you. Is this yeah. you try to get your kids' money? Oh, no. <laughs> Look, the kids, are, my kids are going to be all right. They're going to inherit, um, you know, they're going to inherit a, a portfolio. And when and, they wake up, they yeah. realise, you know, <laughs> they go, oh, that's what Dad's been doing with my money all this time. Oh, it's all right. We'll just knock him off. But look, <laughs> I know what you're saying. We that, absolutely yeah. have to teach children the value of money. Oh, but, we do. But when we mm. understand the true value of every dollar has a job to do, yes. then, it, then it should be in the best allocated position. In most cases, that's it's an offset account. account. Yeah, totally right? agree. So, so if kids go and wash the car and earn $10, Okay, ten dollars in the oh, spreadsheet, that's but you keep the money in the offset. Who, who's you know? dollars? Who, who's hourly rate though? Are you, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you're charging that child labour? Yeah, yeah, for ten dollars for the car no, wash. The spreadsheet management. I'm thinking <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it is. Yeah. Well, I'll give you a tip. In five or so years, you won't even have to worry about that because you'll be talking to an assistant. Oh, I love it. Who will manage your money for you? Yes. Like it is. The world is rapidly changing mm. in in this space, and and I do see you know um, five to ten years that. We will have personal assistants that will manage our money for us. Oh, bring it on. I can't mm. wait. But they're going to be super clever too, right? Even they're gonna, better. <laughs> they're going to be able to tell you in real time exactly mm. the consequences of every decision you make oh, around your money. Oh, wow. So that's going to transform the way in which we spend money. And and I'm that to me is, is exciting because the problem that we've got at the moment, you know, in society is we've got too many people who, who have no control, no uh, money habits, that, that are good money habits and, mm. and that behaviour will change because you'll see, um, you know, these types of, they'll see their consequences in real time. <laughs> and then you'll get the people like uh, the afterpays of the world that will bring up innovative, innovative products to, <laughs> yeah. you know, go Please against that more. try. Yeah, well, yeah. But look, the, re the reality is, is th you know, there's going to be a certain amount of information that's going to be at your fingertips that's never been at your fingertips before. So mm. the likes of the afterpays of this world will really struggle. Mm. Right, because they will, the kids will work out that that you know one hundred and twenty dollars pair of jeans mm. is now going to cost them two hundred dollars. Mm. All right, so all of a sudden it's like, is that worthy of my money, or can I find an alternative means to? Mm. So I think the world is going to transform around personal savings and money management. I think uh, we're only seeing the start of it now through you know Scott Pape's book and the Barefoot Invest. That's mm. you know there, there is an appetite for it. The you know pineapple yeah, project, right. those types of things are really good. So are you talking? Is that the content of your Next book, which is due for release, yep. or is that the book after that? No, no, that's this book now. <laughs> right. So, so you know, look the 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 book around in our business, 
we focus on two things, mm. okay? So we focus on money management and then good, good research and good selection of the property. If we can get those two things right, normally we're going to create a better financial outcome yep. or we call it financial peace for our clients. Mm. So um, the new book is a money management system. Right. Um, so it's, it's not a what to do book. It's a how to do it. Right. So it's quite detailed in terms of there's seven steps. Mm. And so work through those seven steps, set your money management system up and then run the system. Mm. So, you know, and it's a pretty simplistic system because mm. all your money basically comes into one primary account, which is usually your offset account, or if yep. you don't have a property yet, it's going to be a primary high interest savings account. Yep. And then everything shoots off that, but it's yep. all controlled really easily. 100%. Our clients will sometimes sit down with me and I'll get to the end and I'll like, I've given them three or four points and they're like, is that it? I'm like, yep. You know, it's simple. It's, <laughs> yeah. not, it's not sexy. No. You know, mm. you top up your super. Okay, yes, you're going to pay off. You get a, get your offset account. Sometimes mm. I'm not doing that. Um, you know, maybe buy one investment property uh, and that's it. Mm. And it's like that's how simple. And if you yeah. get a system in place yep. and then you just stick to it and you give it time and you compound it. And it becomes habit. Yep. Once it becomes habit, habit. you are dangerous. Yeah. You are dangerously yeah. good. Yeah. In terms of what that looks like, <laughs> but we still got human nature that may well get in the way of this, haven't we? I mean, this is this is a, a little problem we all have. Our elephant. Yes, that's the <laughs> elephant in the room, and 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 some of the technology and some of the ideas that we're working on in our lab, mm. um, we think will change that behaviour. Because wow, so- you've got to think about it. We, we we've been doing this for a long time now, right? So our biggest question to ourselves, the question that we've been trying to solve from a money management point of view, is. How do you tell a person about a problem they don't realise they've got? Yes. That is the question that we think we've solved, but time will tell. Wow. And so you've yeah. solved that about money. See, I think I think people, like, it's the same question asked people about property half the time. It's wealth. Because yeah. ultimately property is a vehicle towards Absolutely. that wealth story. You know. but, but, and I think what's happened now with the, the difficulty of getting access. So in the last however many years, you go to the bank, you've got a you know, fairly decent income, you've got some equity in properties or whatever, banks throw money at you, you'll find a way to make your cash flow work, you <laughs> yeah. know, and, and you get to do and be and whatever you want, right? Mm, yeah. Now, all of a sudden, you've got the brakes on. You can't. I can't go on, you know, draw down and maybe go on that holiday. I can't actually just buy that property I thought I was going to be able to buy. I can't upgrade my home. I can't renovate. I can't put the kitchen in. Things, all of a sudden my, all the things that have been free and I have never thought too hard about, I suddenly have to think prioritise. Mm. And so now that question, you know, the big, that big elephant in the room, I might have a piece of shit in my property portfolio that is holding me back and costing me, you know, more and I can't continue to ignore it. Yes. That conversation is star- starting to be had mm. and it's taken APRA and the Royal Commission, I think, to bring it about. But, yeah, it is a really good question. Yeah, well, it, plan to become what you plan to become. I mean, it's, it's a, an old tagline, right, but the reality is it works. So when you are, you know, a good money management system does rely on you to say these are my regular things that I'm going to spend on mm-hmm. and I've also got ad hoc things coming up into the future. So if you can run, you know, in our system we call it money smarts. If you run your money smarts over an annual period, you need to just know what what's going to happen inside that annual period mm-hmm. and, and some of it's going to be provision money and then the other is going to be regular spending and we break that regular spending up in terms of a weekly allocation. Mm-hmm. So go back to the old days Budgeting. of our grandparents. Well, well, it, it, it's <laughs> how we do it is we've gone to a digital cashless society. Right? Well, I think this is the thing, isn't it? We don't have money. 
Correct. And our kids don't have money. No, so how do you all. teach kids money management when yep. they don't physically have the coins that they see disappearing as they hand it over for their bags of lollies? So how we do it is we go back to that system of the yellow envelope with the cash in it. Yeah, mm. yeah. And we allocate that uh, out. For those younger listeners, that's how you used to get your pay. <laughs> yes, we used to get paid cash and then have to go to the bank and put the money <laughs> yes. in to take, take out our, you know, our play money. So <laughs> our grandparents used to have the jar system, right? Mm. And the jar system was the mortgage jar then the bills jar, mm. and then basically groceries, mm. and then the savings, right? Mm. So um, that's how they worked it. So our system is based on those proven principles, mm. but we've just iterated it to- Digital um, jars. Digital jars, right? So we've got these <laughs> virtual jars that all live inside the primary account, but then we have a Visa debit card, and you get a weekly allowance once you've done your numbers, right? There's no money left in the debit that's card. It. And then, so guess what you have to do? Open up the pantry and try and make good- until your next payday. I love it. And that's how you trap that. Pantry meals. That discretionary surplus spending that goes on. That's where most of the money's lost. I mean, exactly right. We, yeah. I've exactly, mm. I use exactly the same system, yeah. basically, within yeah. a different you know, iteration. Mm. Um, so the, the big thing, let's say you earn $100,000 a year mm-hmm. after taxes, let's say 80. And so what happens is, you know, work love to pay you monthly. You know, the reason why they want to pay monthly is less, less for them. Correct. They don't care yeah. about your future. Yeah. If they cared about your future, they'd pay you weekly. Um, so what happens is you get this. Uh, <laughs> well, that money's sitting in a high interest savings account, earning the company That's money. That's the reason. That right? is the reason. It's, not, it's more it's less administrative. It's less administration. But you yeah, also yeah, get yeah. to keep the, the cash in the bank. And, yeah. uh, and you actually work a few weeks till they actually pay you, right? Correct. And so what happens is they give you this six grand and say, off you go. I oh, know, two, two weeks in advance, two weeks in arrears. Yeah, but, I mean, still, they still give <laughs> you this. Uh, it depends when you start. Yeah, it depends what when you start. And so- you know, you get these six grand and it's like in most employers, like they're getting this now. They're slowly getting that they their employee welfare is more than just paying someone, you know, if they're stressed or they're unwell. Like you can't just oh, say that's sure. your problem. Like no. you've got to actually care about your staff. Yeah. Correct. And, you know, giving someone six and a half grand a month with zero financial education because there's no one giving it to them mm-hmm. and saying you just got to manage that. Now, how? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, going back to that kind of principle, you know, you have to kind of cut that up and go weekly. Yep. Um, and I think when the people don't realise is they see they go, I get $80,000 a year. But once you minus off your living costs and your rent mm-hmm. and the bills and things like that, you might only have 20 grand left over. Mm. And so what happens is if you thought about that then, well, I only get $400 a week. And then if you just paid yourself $400 a week instead of $6,500 a month, mm. you would change your life pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, and that's what your system's doing, right? Yep. You're kind of mm. cutting out. Six and a half grand a month, you're going all the way down to 400 bucks a week. Yep. That's what you got. Well, we're, we're doing it from we, we, our seven-step process is as simple as sort of gather, sort, calculate, set up your banking, then check up once a month, then tweak, and then roll over. That's mm. it. Like, that's what the whole book's about. It's Beautiful. just 250 pages of it because it's quite detailed when there's, when there's little <laughs> tips and so forth. Yeah, but, it's, yeah. but once you get it set up, because our system is not a – our system is not relying on tracking every dollar. Because most, so it's oh, a, that's, that's good. A, because that's, that's a, a bottom-up system, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of people can't maintain mm. that discipline. Mm. Ours is a top-down system, yeah. which means that once the money's there and we've pre-allocated, right. every dollar's got a job to do. All yeah. you need to make sure is that your weekly allowance, your yeah. seven-day float, <laughs> is going to do the things that you said it's going to right. do. All your bills are covered for in your regular payments because we pay them on the credit card, so we get the fifty-five-day interest-free period. Right. So that means our money's sitting in our offset, and it auto sweeps. So you never pay interest. Oh, so it's very clever in terms of all the to moving parts. Pay your, your credit it just bill, happens. Your credit it happens all, uh, naturally. Mm. So, so it's a really interesting point because coming back to your point around um, workers, 
Uh, a lot of workers say, look, you know, the wage I get paid is important, but it's not everything to me. So if you can give me some other, you know, other value, value add in terms of making sure that I'm educated around my money management mm. or bringing in a financial planner to sort of talk to mm. me about how I set up my super mm. and all those, that's value adds. Right? And, and, you know, what's the biggest reason why most people are stressed? Money or relationships. Yeah. So can't do much about Why the relationship. Is relationship stressed? Mainly money. 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 So, so <laughs> not always, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but a lot of it is. No, you absolutely. Know, and your state 100%. of wallet plays with your state of mind. Yeah. yeah. And you really buy critical. a crap property to your home. You know <laughs> yeah. that can that can play havoc oh, yeah. with your finances. Or and you renovate with your own yeah. home. Oh, yes. God. And with yeah. your relationship. So yeah. I wouldn't mind going a bit of different tact. Yeah. Sure. Um, you know, there's a lot of worry. You, you obviously know a lot of people in the property industry. You speak with the you know, picker and pipper. A lot of people in. Kind of high places, I yep, guess. Yep. Government uh, too now. Yeah, is government. This is yeah. where I'm going. Yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> negative gearing changes. Um, you know, there's yeah. a, th- a month ago. Mm. You know, like would have thought, you know, maybe a zero percent chance that it was going to get through, maybe five percent, and then all of a sudden, bang, Turnbull shot. Uh, new prime minister, Labor's going to win. Um, and let's it, hope not. Yeah, but well, you I know, know, I don't like a Pentecostal Christian. Um, Prime Minister. So, you know what? I, I'm almost willing to go, give us negative gearing. <laughs> it's the lesser of two evils. <laughs> yeah, but I guess just from a um, from an advice point of view, I didn't think yep. it would happen. I know the consequences of it would be mm. drastic on some parts of the market. Yep. Um, but it's looking likely and they're not backing down. You know, you look at the, um, no. the no. Facebook group of um, Labor and they're still yep. pushing negative gearing has got to go. And so, I the, don't know, what's your the thoughts? N- the, well, the number crunches have done you know, whether it's politically palatable and it, it's a winner. It's a vote winner because people yeah. don't understand the consequences, right? No. So, that, you know, where do, where do governments often tweak policy? They, they tweak policy in superannuation, stuff that doesn't affect people now. Yeah. And now Labor's done a good job of talking about greedy property investors, mm. right? And, oh, I mean, I got a letter from Bill. I mean, he's, you know, I'm one of his constituents and he's, local, uh, local, he's my local member, mm. unfortunately. Um, <laughs> and he talked about, you know, the letter that he sent to me was about these greedy property investors who have seven, seven or eight properties. Yeah. And I'm like, they don't all have seven or eight. In fact, 73% of them only have one. Yeah. So, and they're not all, you know, super mega rich people. Now, they're, they're sort of saying this is a vote winner in, in, in terms of it's easy to sell because yeah. it's only on existing property, right? Mm. So they're going to ban it on existing property. So everyone thinks that, well, that's got to be good. Like all the academics think it actually works, right? You know, because it means that everyone's going to, you know, there's still going to be construction boom, you know, people are still going to buy these properties. And they and do so- believe the answer to affordability, and they keep saying this, yeah. is supply. Yeah. All the academics and the and the politicians keep saying this, and I go, oh my god, don't you get it? You got an oversupply issue. Sorry, I just jumped in there. Yeah, but yeah, no, you got oversupply it. issue. You got shit loads of apartments that nobody lives in in Melbourne. You got shit loads of apartments that nobody lives in in Brisbane, and probably elsewhere mm. in the country. More coming in Sydney, I think too. Yep. The fact that they build them and that there's a demand elsewhere, it don't, the two things don't go together. No, they don't. I mean, it's obviously <laughs> they, they did get enough supply coming into the system to affect prices, mm. right? So even in, in the construction boom for house and land packages, now we're seeing, you know, you know, I caught up with a person at one of those expos and they were talking about how diabolical it is out wide selling land subdivisions. Like, Yeah, but is that is because- hard. the ma- oh. 
They are like they've had their best time ever, but it's the worst it's conditions in the last 26 years, right? It's literally overnight 20, 30% drops in value. But that is because, isn't it, that the investor dollar, there's so much investor activity buying property out there. Speculation, and now those, those yeah. investors can't get their, their funds. It's a combination, right? Investors don't, other than mining towns, silly investors who go into mining mm. towns, it is a combination of the two. So we could, we could be at an auction tomorrow and we might have three investors there, but there still might be two owner occupiers. Mm. You mm. drop those three investors out, yep. there's still two owner occupiers yes. who are setting the market price exactly. for that asset. Yeah. So it's very rare that you just get 100% investors going at assets. Mm. So so we're not- Well, you've you know, got those mining towns though. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the mining towns <laughs> are- All yeah, the silly stuff. apartments are probably 95 sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's true. Mm. But I mean, you know, if you call them investments, I mean, let, let's face it, they're not very smart people who are making mm, those decisions. No. So- Coming back to the stuff yes. that, that that drives affordability, and that story is, you know, the the younger generation do want to live closer. You know, yeah. they they want everything now, right? Good mm. luck to them. Mm. And so they don't like the idea that they won't have the lifestyle if yeah. they have to move an hour and a half out of yeah. the city. So it, it does come back to that story in terms of negative gearing. The problem, in my view, is that negative gearing will affect all property prices, except except land values closer into the city. Right. Yeah. Now. The Labor think they're on a winner against the mm. Greens here because what they're spruiking in their, you know, in their um, town hall grassroots type approach to getting out into the community is they're going to these meetings and saying, here's what we're doing about negative gearing and it's going to make property prices cheaper yep. in Northcote. It's going to make property prices cheaper in Redfern. It's going to yeah. make property prices cheaper in all of the inner west of Sydney. It ain't, right? No. What's going to happen is it's going to turn the buyer interest into a different way. Yep. So land banking will be a real thing, right? So um, what you're going to find is houses, uh, the land under those houses will be worth a fortune to then knock that house down and build townhouses or build a duplex, right? Because once I do that, I'm going to get negative gearing benefits on both of those duplexes. So unfortunately, the consequences are higher prices closer into the city for the land Unit prices tumbling mm. because even when when you've got Mervac and everyone else who they you know you'd think the government would or the opposition would be saying well they'll love it because it's going to drive all the investors to buy they're saying it's the stupidest thing we've ever heard because the secondary market will be dead oh absolutely. exactly the secondary <laughs> market the secondary market is going to die so oh. I feel for all of the people who are owner occupiers who have just spent in their last five years saving an $80,000 deposit yep. to buy that house and land package, to set up their great Australian dream, and they're going to be sitting on a property that's not going to grow in value for five, maybe 10 years so or so minimal. And then once they work out the interest that they've just paid on that, they would have been better off renting mm. and yep. putting their money into shares. Yep. Yeah. So that is the danger with this type of policy. They, they're playing with fire. No one, you know, their modelling is done so broadly that there's only sort of numbers on the fringes that the academics think it's not going to have a big impact. Mm. But they aren't, that what they do in those models, they don't change buyer behaviour. That's yeah. the point. They haven't so, factored into correct. how human beings react to this stuff. Correct. It, it's, so we will gets, change strategies. You know what's great though? I think first home buyers, they're going to have a great opportunity to pick up all those bargain basement apartments. <laughs> but will they want to live there? You know, like, <laughs> no, I mean, they, they can only buy one, right? And, yeah, yeah. And so I'm joking. Yeah. I am joking, right? <laughs> it's not my advice. No. So that's the challenge. So it's, it's, it's poorly crafted policy. Mm. What would have been better policy is to actually look at, you know, maybe a tiered structure yeah. 
on how many properties you own yes. and then having a, a reduction in terms of the negative gearing benefit. Yeah. And that would have been great too because that would have been a disincentive for all those spruikers pumping out, going, you got to get by 10 properties yeah. plus. So it would Correct. have been, had a double benefit. Yeah. And then there's the, opportunity you know, there. the capital gains exemptions, mm. right? So they're, they're putting in a, you know, basically no longer a 50% concession, yeah. Yeah. goes down to 25. Now, again, we'd be saying, look, over the long term, the 50% sort of is fair and reasonable if you're going to hold the asset for 20, 30 years. But here's a better idea. Why not in year one and two to yeah. stop the speculators, make it zero? Yeah. So if you flip the asset, make that one zero. But you have to be commercially minded to come up with those sorts of ideas. <laughs> well, right? no, what you've got to do is reach out to the professionals who know the yes. industry yeah. and consult. consult with us. You know, <laughs> we're here to consult. We're be here to government. Because we're, we're happy to listen oh. to that story. Yeah, I mean, Tyron Hyde, um, he said a pretty interesting story, right, when he was talking about depreciation. Mm. You know, so if you're going to make changes to depreciation, you probably should go consult with the industry. Yeah. And his story was quite interesting. They came to him, but they came to him after they've already made all the, yeah. the legislation. And yeah. he's like, well, this is what I think you should do. And they're like, well, ignore that. Um, we're going ahead with we what all we're did. doing. We all submitted, uh, yeah. you know, what they did is they announced it in the budget. Then they said, we're open to submission papers. We all went and put 60, 70-page documents yep. together. No change. Yeah. So it was, it, was, it was lip service. Yeah. That was episode 15, by the way, if anybody's interested in listening to Tyron's episode where he talks all about that. <laughs> we won't be able to do that for much longer. You'll be flicking through hundreds of episodes. <laughs> um, yeah, but, I mean, that was a really interesting conversation. This is what I love about the Elephant in the Room podcast is there's little snippets of information that, you know, listeners can learn from mm. where you said you're at the Buyer Expo and they can't sell these house and land packages. Mm. Now, that Melbourne, a lot of these house and land packages have gone up 50, 60, 70% mm. because they had 100 lots and 500 buyers. Yep. Mm. And when you Supply got that, demand. You, if they're selling, you go, well, why would I sell it for 150 grand if there's so many buyers? Mm. I'm up on it to 200. Sure. And then they start selling at 200. Well, what then, they do is they put it in stages. Mm. Yeah. So they yeah. test the market with stage one and then they sell out in stage one. If it sells out really quickly, instead of a five or a $10,000 increment increase in the land, they might move that to 20, 25,000. That creates and they that fear of missing make out. The block smaller while yep. they're at it. <laughs> well, no, they'll always have the blocks as small as possible. Yeah. You know, these three hundred eighty-five square meter lots that houses are being squeezed oh, onto, and they can't even, you can't even get a fire truck down the, the court to turn around to to actually put the fire out mm. if you're ever going to have a fire in the street. So well, that's right, dangerous. and those things can easily go back, right? Because if they were making money on one hundred fifty thousand dollars, you know, mm. a lot, now that it's getting away with two twenty. They'll okay, go, well, actually, we're still making money at 150 So what you'll see is a lot of these new developers, they can't mm. sell them. They'll just drop the land price. Yeah. The last yeah. the last batch of land that gets sold usually gets distressed sold. So mm. that is them closing up the shop. Like we've got three sales agents out yeah. here. Only four people are turning up a weekend. There's 15 lots to go. Do a ring around. Drop the price by 30000 40000 So the people who got in stage one thought they did all right. Stage two, they thought they did okay. Stage three. They're lost, and then all of the people in stage two have probably got the price back to where it was. Stage one might have been okay. Mm. That's how it works. It's, it's, oh. But that's sell. I mean, at the yeah. end of the day, they're selling land. The biggest, you know, the biggest point to that was um, the HIA did a report in regards to what is made up of that land value, mm. and it's forty-one percent taxes. Yeah. So forty-one percent taxes because they have developer taxes, they have civil Jesus. works taxes, yeah. they have all they have stamp duty tax. Mm. All of those taxes are forty-one percent of the value. So here's here's wow, the big. That puts so I want to circle back to so who makes money out of it? <laughs> the government. Well, the, the developers your, do make money, but because back to Chris's conspiracy theory. Correct. Theory. Yeah. Well, it's true, but <laughs> and, I, and this is where I want to get to. Mm. The negative gearing uh, legislation is federal. 
Yeah. The capital gains tax is, is federal. What about land tax? Land tax is state. Mm. Okay. So land tax, stamp duty, um, and also rates are yep. all land tax. Uh, they're all state-based state. taxes. So the challenge is, right, that these governments, these state-based governments and territory governments rely so heavily. It's, it's the second or third biggest revenue source for them in terms of running the state. So if we do, and, and it's done on turnover, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. So if we don't have that turnover, yep. or if land values start to go backwards, yep. the value of general of the state or territory sets the new land values, that means rates go down. Yep. So if rates go down, stamp duties go down, and the other form of primary income for the states is GST. Yes, of course. Guess what happens? GST is going to go up. So <laughs> we all pay. One way or the other. At the end of the day, we're all going to pay for bad policy. Mm. So we think there is better ways of doing it where not only will it affect investors but also owner-occupiers. And we, we, you know, this is why even from a picker point of view, we are so much more careful around this type of policy because it also affects owner-occupiers. Well, it does. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the um, thing with negative gearing is, mm. is if you take out investors out of the market mm-hmm. and you make it not profitable for them to invest or they can't afford the cash flow mm. and you own something that may be bought by investors, well, then well, when you try to sell it, investors won't buy it. No. So you're only going to get less competition. Yeah. And so a lot of the people who are pushing for negative gearing changes. Um, and I, my personal belief is um, a little bit like it was with superannuation. Um, with superannuation, people who knew what they were doing with superannuation maxed it out mm. and they maxed it out for a long, long time and they put a lot of money into superannuation. Yep. And so, you know, you've got- But now they're getting taxed on it. Correct. Yeah. Right? So the, the government catches up on you. It does. Well, right? that's right. And they did. <laughs> and they and, and I think they should have and they did. And maybe it's, you know, so a lot of people had like 10 million, 15, 20, 100 million in mm. superannuation, mm. all growing tax-free. Yep. Government said, look, this isn't really fair. You've it taken advantage fair. of the system. No, every um, day of the week. We think that that's unfair. Yeah. 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 And I think on the property investment side, you know, people who are running yeah, big portfolios of- you know, anywhere from five to 50 properties um, and yeah, claiming but, huge But they're paying tax. They're, so here's the deal, yeah. right? Negative gearing is only a moment in time, right? Every property eventually goes positively geared. Mm. So if you retain that property over the course of time, you are paying tax at your taxable rate. It's not locked inside super where you're getting 15% yep. or when you're in um, pension phase where it's nothing. So this is, the, this is the other problem that the governments have. The narrow, short-minded views is that they're thinking that it's going to be a tax revenue grab now, and this is why it does get political, because the boffins who have used no change to the behaviour of the buyer think that they'll generate around $25 billion worth of uh, receipts, government receipts, to in their forward estimates. Now, that $25 billion covers their 55, a big chunk of their $55 billion worth of election pledges. That's why this is so political, mm. right? So the political nature of this is that the, the, the Labor Party have gone to Treasury and said, model this with no change to behaviour and we would, we would expect yep. to get these receipts coming through, mm. okay? And then they're thinking, well, that's great. We've got a, another $25 billion in our war chest so to go and, go and buy an election. And, yeah. and, and the reality is that money won't come in. Yeah. Because people no one's going to buy investment properties. No one's going to buy. <laughs> no one's going to sell. Yeah. And no one's right? going to spend yeah. because you're yeah. going to go. Well, 
you know, the, the market hits, everyone's property prices are going backwards, yep. my investment property, you've got to sell that. What do you do? You batten down the hatches. Yep. You go mm. back to the money spart system and, you yeah. know, start but, making cutbacks and, on and your it's, spending. It's yeah. recessionary in every aspect and that's why yeah. we've got a petition on it because we think that it'll cause a recession. It'll mm. be it'll be basically the straw that breaks the camel's back and take us into a recession after 28 years of positive economic growth. This will be the catalyst because mm. my understanding is in their first 100-day pledge, this is yeah, one of the it. this is mm. one of the ones yep. that they're going to change. So well, it's populist, you know. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. and the advent of social media, like you know, yep. as much as I love our Facebook posts and LinkedIn posts <laughs> and all the rest of it, the simple fact is that, that we're all experts in our little tiny microcosms, yep. and we're reactive and we're short term. And our governments have been short term for centuries, really, because four year terms are short terms. Mm-hmm. Um, now. Out the voters are as just as short term as the mm. governments are. Yeah, and, and Mr. Just- and Mrs. Smith, who own their own occupied prime uh, property out wide, eventually want to sell and maybe come in a little yep. bit closer as they go up the property ladder. That property has got thirty percent less buyer activity on it yep. overnight because then, it's a second second hand property. About that. I don't care about, about that. those fat cats and yeah. get a negative gearing. Oh, oh, oh. I mean, there are some property um, people that would love it, though. You know, there's some property people who push positive cash flow, and um, yep. you know they. Uh, Promised the dream on, you know, high yields. So and, maybe they were right after all. Well, maybe, yeah. <laughs> I guess, um, I mean, you know, what's your thoughts on positive cash flow investing? Well, it, case by case, you know, every different client that I look at, I would always say if, you're, if you've got tight cash flows and you still want to invest and you, you're the appropriate age and your risk profile is right, then I, we would look at it. So we're, we're not completely geared towards that. But what we do say to most people is the capital growth is limited. You know, it's it's a bit like you know these um, these properties that are now being sold in in areas around Australia where it's dual occupancy type. You know, mm-hmm. so it's you know it's two houses in one house and there's two kitchens and you yeah. know it's not even started. And 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 because it's not started, who buys that asset? Thirty mm-hmm. percent of the market if it's coming back to resale. Yeah, it's it's exactly the same as student accommodation and all of the service secondary service yep. departments. Investor stock, there is not no, investor grade. That's it. Yes. There's no buyer for it, so it just mm. doesn't grow in value. Yep. So these people are thinking, I'm on a winner because I'm getting this small amount of cash flow. I tell you, you don't have to be Edward, I- you know, Albert Einstein to work out that capital growth is what you take out of property investing over the long term yep. because even as the values grow, you can put your rents higher mm. right? because it's yes. a portion to the demand yep. in the marketplace. Yep. I think, look, fundamentally it is that, you pay one way or the other. Yep. Beginning a high yield is costing you somewhere else, and it's just there's no mm. way to get high yield and high capital growth. Or unless you manufacture it. Well, like, yes, you know, and, but that's not investing. That's renovation. Right? That's, that's, that's active. Correct. That is not yep. investing because an, an investor <clears throat> is a passive person who's putting their money to invest. If you're if you're engaged in um, work, that's a job, yeah. and good luck to you. And yep. and some people make a lot of money out of it. And good, you know, I think good on them yeah. for being able to do that. But that's not investing. No, mm. you know, exactly. I, it's I good think, to get the semantics right. Yeah, we, so but I think uh, one last final point. You, I think you guys go not outside of Melbourne for investing. You look at other places around yeah, yep. the country. Yeah, we buy everywhere. Um, yeah, what t- can you give us an example for our listeners of what some of the stuff that Empower Wealth are kind of buying and, yep. you know, around the country because, you know, a lot of investors can be centric to the city they live in but, yep. you know, haven't had any exposure to you know, what might be some good growth markets. Yeah, so we're pretty active in southeast Queensland at the moment. Um, price points in around that sort of 350 up to 700. So that includes northern uh, northern areas of Brisbane, some stuff on the sunny coast and some yielding stuff on the Gold Coast. Um, we want to be beachside uh, in both of those locations uh, in terms of the beach locations. Um, we're Adelaide. Um, we're buying, you know, sort of character charm type properties in Adelaide. 
um, closer into the city. In fact, we've, we've actually bought some land in the city, um, in the CBD, for under five hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Wow, what do you do with that? Well, it's just we just land bank it, right? Mm. It's got a townhouse on it, so it's just ticking mm. over. But some one day someone's going to come and build a high rise on that site, right? So that's a pretty mm. safe investment for that particular client. Um, and Melbourne, we're picking the eyes out of Melbourne at the moment, so we're still in certain pockets of Melbourne mm-hmm. where we feel that um, there's strong scarcity, good, you know, sort of good demand um, for the land. Um, and we're, we, you know, we're not buying units uh, in Melbourne uh, a lot. We're mainly buying freestanding or townhouses or subdivision sort of semis. Mm-hmm. And any other? Are you going to Perth or not? No, no, Perth's. Still hasn't got a heartbeat yet. No okay. one mentions so, Darwin either in any of these questions. No, Darwin. So because <laughs> Darwin was all the rage at one point, though. Oh, wasn't well, it? That's the luxury of having the big data, right? Mm. So we we measure uh, house and unit movements by suburb, by property type, every month. Mm. And so there's a couple of hundred million data points that we collect every month, and we score them out of a hundred. And so we can sort of see, you know, where those markets are looking at, and and the reliability of our tool is about eighty two percent. Yeah. So that's our initial, and then we go and do the field research because yeah. you should never buy without going and kicking the tyres no. um, in those areas. <laughs> so, but that leads us into the locations that we're buying. So we've got a you know set of parameters, seventeen variables that we look at, and then we do the demographic overlay, mm-hmm. we do the income overlay, yeah. the profiling overlay, the infrastructure overlay, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and that then says where we're going to start buying in that area for a while. And did you guys pick Hobart or? <laughs> I, so here's here, you know call out to uh, to Jeremy Shepherd who is our Head of research, absolutely picked it. He mm. picked it um, before, and he picked it at the right time. A lot of people went in there in 2014, yeah. 2015, and they were going, Hobart, Hobart. It didn't go until 2000, late 2015, early 2016. Mm. So people were in that market for two years with nothing, yeah. and they're claiming it as a right pick. So his, his data picked it. Um, but we decided for, for the majority of our clients, it's a very cyclical market. So historically speaking, it had a 50% run in 2004, 2005, I think. Don't quote me on that, but it was around that time period. Um, and then basically did nothing for, for mm-hmm. effectively t- 10 to 15 years. So the reality now is, you know, that, that we think it's probably pushed over its, its numbers and it'll come back a little bit, but there's still absolutely a, a shortage of stock and we're going to see older migration moving down there. But, but our challenge with Hobart is that the type of person who's migrating to Hobart is a retiree whose income's actually falling. Yep. Mm. So as much as we would, you know, there's going to be people who are going to move them around their beds in their nursing homes and so forth, <laughs> that wasn't enough for us to warrant that it was going to be a knowledge centre. And if it wasn't going to be a knowledge centre, then we could be sitting on something that that booms and then stagnates. Now, um, there's a, there are investors, and this is the argument of whether you sell at that time, right? So time the market recycle those costs and put your money elsewhere. Mm. That's where, you know, Jeremy's headspace is at and that's what his data's showing, um, but we're not there yet. Like in mm. terms of we've been doing this long a long mm. time, um, so, you know, as much as the research shows us that, we still bring what we think is common sense. Now, we could be wrong. Jeremy could be a elite and, you know, he'd be saying, I told you mm. so in 10 or 15 years' time where he keeps picking the right markets. Well, it's interesting. I mean, look, there's a lot of property experts out there, as we all know. Yes. And a lot of them picked Hobart. Yes. And... I honestly think those that really encourage their clients in there should, as part of that whole process, have explained to them there's, this is going to peak and then it could be a long time before it happens again. Yep. Um, so, therefore, there has to be an exit. And, and this is this is the strategy for this particular location. And I, I'm always disappointed when I hear investment advisors who've got their clients in there and haven't actually yeah. had that conversation with them. Because really what is it? Me. It's the 12th biggest city in Australia. 
behind uh, what, you know, Newcastle yeah. and... You yeah, know, so Newcastle's yeah, bigger, yeah. Hunter's bigger, yeah. um, Gold Coast's, Sunny Coast is yeah, bigger, yeah. so um, Geelong's bigger. So, you know... It's, there's it's, there's it's, 11 other um, mainland cities Darwin's you could like... I, I hope I've got this right, but I think Darwin's <laughs> around 17th or something like that. So it just yeah. goes to show you that even though they're a capital of yeah, a territory a or a state, it's just like yeah. you've got to put it into perspective in terms of, you know, because we only report, you know, the sound grabs in terms of when we get on the TVs and when we do the radio interviews is yeah. tell us about the capitals. Yeah, I know, and, the da- know? and all yeah. the data sets, you know, yeah. CoreLogic get up and, and, and Hobart's included yeah. as a capital, but, you know, Newcastle isn't. And uh, Well, Geelong yeah, is another Geelong example. Yeah, We've been yeah. buying down in Geelong for, mm. you know, sort of 14, 15 months and it's, it, we've done very well for those mm. clients down there and it's a bigger marketplace than Hobart. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do, dumb things that end up costing them a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress, mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Ben, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Yeah, I've got a good one. I love a dumbo. Um, years ago um, when I first set up the business, um, I had a lady come in and she, she just told me that she'd bought, um, well, she'd bought a couple of properties on the Gold Coast in these high-rise apartments. And one of the one of the properties that she bought was in the big. Is it A one Tower? What's the big one? Oh, the, it's high, the high, the, the the most, the highest tower. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I can't remember what it's called, but anyway, I've only been there once. And it's um, she bought on the Q one. Q one. Q one. Thank yeah. you. It's uh, so she was on something like the thirty seventh floor, and she paid five hundred eighty thousand for that property on the thirty seventh floor, but she was going to sell that property. Because on the 63rd floor, she could get a property that originally sold. Um, she could pick it up $100,000 less than what somebody else paid for it. Now, she was going to drop forty or 50000 on her own one, but she, she honestly believed the sales agent to say that, do you know what they do, how they sell it? Mm. 5000 11? Mm. Like, it's ridiculous, mm. right? So, you know, like the view on the 37th floor overlooking the, the ocean Ain't going to be built out. And it's not going to be bigger. It's not going to be better on the 60s. <laughs> like, how much more can you see up there? Oh, my God. They're so funny, isn't so it? So I and, – and she was adamant. Did she do it? Yep. She did it? Yep. And, wow. Moving up and, in the world. And she also bought a – You could even argue it's worse up there. She bought a sub-penthouse um, down the road in Burley Heads for something like $1.5 million. And this is going back in like 2007, 2008. Mm. And so then the GFC worth, hit. What's worth now? One point. Oh, no, no, <laughs> probably probably eight hundred thousand. Oh god! So she's dropped half a million. Oh. Look, now whether she actually proceeded, I, we knew of a, of a mm. mutual friend. So I I don't know whether they cancelled that contract after you know you know the big one, but they would have lost a hundred thousand dollar deposit. Yeah, so ten percent. Mm. And upgrading so, in a building where, where you already got a you already <laughs> can't be built out. So so it was oh, fascinating because I even had to bring another one of my colleagues into the room and say, hey. You know, without without warning, what do you think about this? And she'd tell the story, and, and he'd be like, "Oh, get out of the con- that's just ridiculous." So, <laughs> and then, so she obviously didn't listen to us, so she's mm. not a client of ours. Um, but that's like that's just it's like telling yourself a story. Like, oh, that, yeah, we've all got heaps yeah, of them, don't we? I mean, tell yourself a story. That one was a ripper. Yeah, mm. an absolute disaster. And now those properties are still not worth any more yeah. than what she would have paid for them back then, and she would have been servicing a higher debt. On our property now, I don't know how well it rents, you know, and whether she's got an Airbnb and she's getting a bit. Of, don't Even know. So there's yeah. still transaction but, costs. You oh, know, you've got to get get in and get correct. out. And, but 
That's the elephant, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> look, I've already made a really good decision by buying in this building, and mine's only lost fifty grand. That's nothing compared to some of the others. So my decision is really good. So I'm going to take I'm advantage. Gonna, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to buy in the same building because the, my original decision was so good. I'm going to do it all over again just to prove how good it was in the first place. Yeah, I mean that's it's the thing. The elephant with um sometimes with investors, right? Like, so she's had that. She's looked at her returns on the first one. It's probably at that point in time she might have seen a little bit of price rise, right? No, I lost money. At the first one? Yeah. Yeah, okay, she's, yeah, she's, 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 she's accepting she like, that she's lost she's money. She's lost money on that, but she's going to grab a bigger gain on the bigger loss that the oh, person's made above. Right, okay. So in Does some she think ways, that that's going to grow in capital value better than the one she's got? Because it's on a 60-something oh God. That's just hilarious, just, isn't it? It's like oh. there's somewhat some logic in there which I sort of like <laughs> in that you upgrade in a falling market. It's a good logic. But she didn't learn right? from the yeah. asset selection, did she? Because she went and bought another off the plan. High rise or something? Right. Same, 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 same building. Same building. I did yeah. another one down the road, right? Did another one. Yeah, did, did yeah. yeah well, she, she did a sub penthouse. Uh, she had a deposit down on the sub penthouse and I said, you get out of that too. No way known it's going to be worth that when it's built. And so, oh, it was just a car Yeah, wreck. I mean, I've seen this lots of times with, you know, clients will come to me and, you know, because I'm a little bit vocal around, you know, new developments no. and things like that. And <laughs> they go, well, if I call Chris, I'm going to, I'm going to hear the truth. I'm going to, he's going to talk to me about it. Um, and yeah, this and and it can be that you know, and this I think the biggest fear in Sydney right now is that a lot of people who are bought into these new apartments and new high rises. I feel like they've made good decisions because they look at it and they paid five fifty and it's worth eight fifty because it's artificially inflated. Just in Sydney, and yeah, just in Sydney. <laughs> and what they've then and done, they've gone and bought two more oh, in yes. Melbourne yeah. and in Brisbane yeah. to diversify. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, and, yeah. and now and. They've based all those decisions back to their own decision and that they've seen growth mm. and they don't understand that it's been a bit of an artificial inflation. So, Well, uh, the Hills District, Hills District in bought in this recent boom, two mm. bedroom, two two-bedroom apartments in one development, over 600000 paid. Bank Val came in at 430 each. Mm. That's a third. And, uh, you know, and the automatic response to save face, we're buying them for the long term. Like oh, we, I know. We, That's just, and, so and, I'm happy to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars in the paper, short term. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously they had a lot of equity in their wow. current home, right? And I, I suspect they're reasonable income earners. Mm. But it isn't an amazing like that. They just go, oh, we're, justification. You know, yeah, we're like we're, mm. we're, we're, we're t- playing this for the long game. Well, the opportunity cost of that has just destroyed people, how much money you could have made. I know mm. people, but they just it's, it's this blinkers. Yeah. It's that whole idea of it's the same reason that that Labor's going for this cheap. Boat grabbing yep. negative gearing. It's that short termism. And it, the, the future is too hard to comprehend. It's not concrete enough. Yep. And so, therefore, we just make these silly decisions now and justify them. Human behavior around money. It's a classic story. That is. You can make 6% or 8%. And the, the difference could be half a million dollars in 20 years. People are still happy to make the 6%. Take $50 out of my wallet, I'll punch you in the nose. Like, because you just took, like, lose money. Yeah. And it's like, well, it's there's loss of it, yep. You know, it ties in all these biases that we talked about in our first episode, Crazy. you know, and it's just bizarre. Mm. But actually there was an episode of yours that I listened to a, a bit back with Greville Pabs. Yeah, Is that yeah. how you say his name? Pabs. And uh, and he, he was saying basically in his business something like 1,000 valuations they did or something mm. and, and of brand new, you know, mm. for settlement mm. and close to 50% were coming in significantly, well, lot less than, less than purchase price, yep. a lot at 10, some at 20 and so those investors- 18 months later when there, they finally complete. Yeah, but they're behind they the eight can't. ball before they even start mm. on their property journey or, or you know, before, yep. 
you know what I mean? I mean, they yeah, basically. And she'll be right, mate. Won't doesn't really float with the bank. You know, you don't get to this. You know, <laughs> six weeks before settlement, and they. The thing with the developments is they they kind of delay, delay, delay it. Oh, we might finish on time, mm. and and then bang, you get this letter. Notice to complete. Bang. You've got to do this guys. in three weeks, yep. and then the broker days. goes. Well, yeah, our older valuation, fingers crossed. Mm. And if that bank valuation comes in low, we haven't got time to shop the market, mm. and it's it's a nightmare. And Late if, settlements. If yeah. it is, yeah. um, if there is a low valuation on the bank, you can't then just assume that you'll go get your own independent valuation. The bank will do their own, and correct. Um, you know, if that's fifty grand down, that's fifty grand you've got Beautiful. to find. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can't say the bank you pay forty percent of it or eighty percent of it. Yeah. So, uh, it's a huge risk. It's massive. So there you go. Well, look, Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Now, we're going to put in the show notes all the links to your various enterprises. Thank you. (laughs) So there's- Join Picker, five bucks. Absolutely, Join Picker, five bucks. We need as many members. I'm a member and- um, And It's a free book for every listener, I think, isn't it? Every sign-up gets a book. Which book? (laughs) (laughs) They're giving away the armchair guy now. Um, So we'll put the link in for the books as well and we'll also, what else, the property couch and everything else. I have to say there's loads and loads and loads of- Excellent resources on your website, Ben. Um, he loves doing these little videos with a whiteboard behind him and he draws all this stuff up. It's a bit <laughs> like Mr. his own financial Mr. Squiggle. Um, but it's really, really good, solid stuff. And, and all, we're all about education. So, therefore, get in there, listen to it. Thank you. Watch it. And thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Thank you, Ben. We want to make you a better elephant rider. So this week's elephant rider training is... All about how to manage your cash flow. Uh, I loved what Ben said in this episode around a simple system and actually paying yourself a weekly wage. I actually personally, I use a very, very similar um, system with my clients. And I think what you need to do is kind of break down your spending to all the costs to actually live. And it's pretty scary when you look at this and all the costs, you cannot really change them. You know, it's your food, it's your bills, it's your phone, it's the car. You know, once you look at add up all these costs, Put money aside every month to cover those. Really, then you've just got to worry about having a life. And this is the money that you have to track and this you have to spend. And this is the one that you always have kind of separated from your cost to live. So my, my advice really is if you haven't got a way of you spending your money each month, get a system in place, make it simple, but really focus on just tracking the cost to actually have a life. Join us for our next episode when we interview the property professor, Peter Koulizos. Now, this was a really in-depth interview. We covered a lot of ground, three particular areas. One is why gentrification is so important for property growth and how to recognise when it's going to happen and the various stages that it takes. And it does take a long time, listeners, so this is all about investing for the long term. We also touched on... Uh, small-time property development and some absolute pitfalls that mum and dad investors, which is code for first-time property developers, need to be aware of before they dive in headfirst. And Peter also gives his tips for the best places to invest if you only have a five to ten-year runway. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. Until next week, don't be a dumbo.
Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.